You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. The title of the message this morning is The Heart of the Sovereign King. As we look at Palm Sunday, as we look at Jesus' Passion Week, one thing we see coming out loud and clear is the heart of our sovereign king, Jesus. Uh, We need one up here, guys, if you can. Bibles up here. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Thank you. Uh, The heart of the King Jesus is clearly revealed. And uh, beginning today with Palm Sunday, this Passion Week, uh, it's awe-inspiring to see all that Jesus did, all the profound things that he accomplished and taught in these seven last days. Um, Have you ever uh, just been in awe of God's glory? Have you ever gone, uh, maybe, I remember standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time and just looking at this massive chasm and thinking about the power to create such a, a canyon, you know, the amount of water it must have took. What is that noise? Do you hear that? Sounds like coffee's brewing. Thank you. But I remember standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon just being moved like, wow. Or maybe for you, it was on a starry night as you looked up into the sky and you were just in awe of God's glory. Uh, For me, I love uh, snorkeling. I love uh, uh, snorkeling in Maui or in the Caribbean. And you have this crystal blue just water with these myriads of colors of fish and coral and all that's in there. And you're just, the moment you put that mask on, you put your face in the water, it's like you're in a different universe and it's all to the glory of God. And it's amazing, right? Like, like in, my, in my everyday world, there's, there's all kinds of needs and demands and everybody you know, wants something and you put that mask on, you stick your head under the water and like you're not needed at all. As a matter of fact... You're a hindrance. You're just there to observe all of the beauty of everything that God has done. And you do those things, and and if you're not moved with awe, there's something wrong, right? And here as we look at the last week of Jesus' life, the same thing ought to happen. We ought to look and just go, oh my gosh. I mean, your heart so clearly on display Here you are, you are the King of Kings, you are the Lord of Lords, you are the Alpha and the Omega, you are the beginning and the end, you are the one who spoke the universe into existence, and you've become a man. And you're going to accomplish, you're going to purchase, you're going to a cross to redeem us back to yourself. But before you do, you're pouring out everything you have to show us your heart and to show us your will. In the scripture, it says, those that he loved, he loved until the very end. I would think, you know, it'd be like, hey, I mean, gosh, I've done this for a long time now. It's just, I need a little break right before I go. 
go to the cross. No, 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 no. Those he loved, he loved to the end, and he pours out everything he has. We're in Matthew 21 today. Uh, We're going verse by verse through the Bible. And here we are, Matthew 21, which is really interesting because we began this series in Matthew a little over a year ago. Uh, We've had over 50-something sermons since we began this series. And here we are going through verse by verse, and today is Palm Sunday, and guess what chapter we're on? Chapter 21, which just happens to be the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and all I can say is it's better to be blessed than it is to be good, right? Uh, This was just God's doing. He orchestrated it, and really thankful. Uh, Chapter 21, uh, let's read, let's kind of get our heart around uh, what's happening on this Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Are you there, Matthew 21? Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, uh, the Mount of Olives, by the way, right there uh, uh, overlooking the Temple Mount. There's the Mount of Olives and then the, the, the Valley of Kidron where the Kidron uh, 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 stream comes through right there. And then up on the other side is the Temple Mount. I actually have a picture of, of the Temple Mount. If you look there, uh, I can't really show you all of it because this picture doesn't do it. But the Temple Mount is massive. It starts here and goes all the way over, way past here, way over to here. And then this would be the Valley of Kadron, right over here. And this would be uh, the, right about over here, which isn't on the picture, would be the Mount of Olives. And Jesus would be standing there and he would be looking at the Temple Mount, knowing what was going to come. Knowing that he would be tried. Knowing that he would be brought to uh, trial by the, by the religious leaders. That he would be beaten and all the, cruci- the crucifixion, everything that he knew. And there he is at the Mount of Olives, looking at all of this stuff here, there at Bethphage. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt or a foal. This isn't a pony. This is a a baby donkey, a foal with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately, he will send them. Isn't this interesting? Here, Jesus showing his sovereignty. How could he know this? Here, Jesus showing his sovereignty. Hey, you're going to go into town. It'd be like saying, hey, uh, 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 JC, Dave, Amy, I want you to go Uh, down the street, around the corner, and there's going to be a car there. I want you to get that car. I want you to get in it and drive it over. And if anybody says to you, hey, what are you doing with my car? Just say, Pastor Dave has need of it. (laughs) That would be weird, right? That would be weird. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. And Jesus' sovereignty is on display. What's interesting is Jesus never anywhere used his sovereign powers for his own needs. 
And yet he, here he is doing something. And again, I don't think he's doing it for his own needs. What is he doing? Why does he use his sovereignty in this way? Why does he show the disciples this right here? Why? Here's why. Because he knows what's coming. And he knows that the disciples are going to be shaken, are going to be frightened, are going to be confused, are going to be weak in faith. And they will look back and they will go, oh, he was sovereign over the entire thing. There are times in my life when God reveals his sovereignty to me. Oh, I've got this. I just did something that you could never do and I just, it's obvious to me like, wow, God, you are amazing. And those times come and they strengthen our faith, don't they? Don't, don't they? They bring us to a place where we have a greater understanding of Jesus' majesty and splendor. Verse 4, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, this is the prophet Zechariah, Tell the daughter of Zion. Who's the daughter of Zion? Israel. More specifically, who? More specifically, who? It, you're absolutely right. It's Israel. It's the Jews. More specifically, it's all the children of God. In other words, tell the children of God, behold, your king is coming to you. Oh, worthy of a double underline of king right there. Your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and as Jesus commanded them, they go and they say, you know, they go to that specific spot and they say, uh, find this donkey with a colt right there and just crazy like, man, sure enough, there it is. And then they get there and they start taking the donkey and Luke's gospel tells us when they started taking the donkey, the owners of the donkeys come out and they go, hey, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of them. And the guy goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and it's exactly as Jesus taught. Verse 7, then they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him, Jesus, on the colt. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Tens of thousands of people all there because of Jesus. Jesus had raised Lazarus. Jesus had done all these miracles. His fame was just uh, incredible. And, and now they're all coming. And they're laying their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches. John's gospel tells us they were palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. They cut down palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, do you know what it means? Save us now. Save us now. It's a Hebrew phrase. Hosanna, save us now. Save us now, Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, what is that a reference to? That is a reference to the messianic prophecies that the Messiah would come from 
David's lineage. And they're saying, save us now, Messiah. Save us now, Messiah. Save us now, Messiah. All the people are shouting out as they lay their clothes on the floor, as they lay the palm branches on the floor, and Jesus comes in on a donkey. And it says, they yelled out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the, multiple, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. We see some interesting things that are here. Uh, this so-called triumphal entry. As Jesus comes in on this colt, the scripture tells us that colt, that donkey had never been ridden. I encourage you to try that, by the way. Get on a donkey that had never been ridden. Uh, you'd be in for a wild ride. And yet this donkey knows its creator. And all of creation knows. And yet the men that Jesus came to save, they don't know. They will crucify him. And here Jesus, we see him coming in, and it begs the question, doesn't it? Why was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem so humble? Why? Why come so humble? Doesn't it seem odd, even radically inappropriate, that Jesus, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, would make his coronation day riding in on a donkey? Kind of crazy. Can you imagine the powerful Roman emperors laughing right now? <laughs> this is your king on a donkey? This is his entourage? A bunch of riffraff? You know that when a coronation would happen, when a king would come in, they would come in with all the pomp and circumstance. When a Roman emperor would enter the city, oh, there would be days of cleanup beforehand. They would come in with chariots and with soldiers and with polished weapons and with all the dignitary uh, dignitaries that were there. They would come in just, you know, all kinds of hype. And, you know, the there would be an entourage that went before them and at the very end, then the, you know, the the Roman emperor would come in or whatever. And here's the question. Should not Jesus enter in with the majesty and splendor that far surpasses the mere kings and rulers of the earth? Have you seen how kings and rulers behave? Have you seen how they come in? Have you seen what they do? Uh, there's a king of Thailand. He's a nefarious king. His name is Maha Vajira Long Longhorn. And uh, look at this pomp and circumstance that he comes in with. Uh, this is, uh, there was another shot, an aerial shot, that showed it was even quite a bit more extravagant than this. And that's not unusual. How about Prince Harry? Remember when he married Meghan Markle before she got in trouble with the crown? Remember that? Uh, uh, yeah, there they are. Uh, look at this next one. There was... Uh, uh, what was the number? 
There was 423,000 well-wishers that day watching this. uh, Go to that next slide. Watching them come in with all the pomp and circumstance. Isn't it crazy how the kings of the earth are? How about Kim Jong-un? Here he is. Look at all the pomp and circumstance. Look at this next picture. Yeah, hit the next one. Look at that. Oh my gosh. Now, when you consider all that, it begs the question, why did Jesus make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem so humble? He is the king of kings. He is the only righteous king the world will ever see. He is the only, he's God. And yet he comes in so humbly. Why does he make his triumphal entry so humble? Can I propose to you? Because this is not his triumphal entry. His triumphal entry is in Revelation chapter 19. And when he comes, he is going to come with a host of angels. With ten, you know, myriads and myriads and myriads of all his saints. He is coming in all of his majesty and all of his power. He is coming in in a triumphal entry that the world has never, ever seen. Every eye will see, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. He is coming in power. And this entry here, well, it's not really Jesus' triumphal entry. You see, Jesus' incarnation, when God became flesh, it wasn't time for his glorification, it was time for his humiliation. God became a man to reach us. God humbled himself. He emptied himself of his glory. And the divine took on human form. He became a man that he might redeem us to himself. And here we see the heart of our sovereign King Jesus. Jesus did not come to set up his throne or to overthrow overthrow Rome or to slay Israel's enemies. Jesus came to save us of our sin. And he came to save all nations to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This is the heart of our king. And here we see how humble, how lowly, how gentle he is. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. Let these words enter in your heart, into your mind, ponder uh, just the humility of our sovereign King Jesus. Philippians 2 says this, Though he is equal with God, he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled himself even further than that and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a criminal's death. Amazing. And he did all that to purchase our salvation. Again, this is the heart of our sovereign king. 
purchasing our salvation with his own blood. This was not an afterthought. This was predetermined before the foundation of the world. And I'm so encouraged by that. Because I look at my life, I look at how messed up I am, I look at how selfish I can be, I look at what a sinner I can be, and I think that if God would, would see me in all this, how would he ever... But the Bible tells us that before any of this ever happened, knowing how, how far man would fall from glory, knowing how unfaithful man would be, knowing how we would take all the gifts and the things he gives us and misuse them for, for ways he never intended, he still chose to make us. And to pay a price, to pay for all of our failures and our faults, to redeem us, that we might in hope one day understand his great love for us and that it might move us and that we might actually say, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. His great hope. And all these things planned before the beginning of time. The Bible tells us that Jesus was actually slain before the foundation of the world. No, it didn't happen yet, but he planned it out before the foundation of the world. He knew what it would cost to purchase our redemption. And there were many prophecies of Jesus coming, the Messiah coming into the world. And Matthew makes mention of one of the Messiah's prophecies here as he says, look, verse 5, Tell the daughter of Zion, tell the children of God, behold, your king is coming to you. He is lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, he quotes there from Zechariah 9, 9, and he says, listen, your king's coming to you, but he's not coming to rule and reign over, over you. He's coming humbly. I have the verse up on your screen because in uh, the passage here in Matthew, there's a phrase missing from the verse in Zechariah. Read this verse with me out loud. Tell me if you notice which part was missing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was written 485 years before uh, Jesus did this. And here, notice what it says. It says, he is what? Just and having salvation. He's not coming to rule and to reign. He's coming to bring justice and salvation. Justice to make us just, to make us justified, to make us just as if we had not sinned. And here the people take palm, branch, palm branches and they shout out, Hosanna, save us Lord, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What they are doing now is they're actually quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's one of the Hillel psalms. Uh, the Hillel, Hillel means praise. It's one of the praise psalms. And here's what they were. There was a, uh, uh, about uh, 10 Hillel psalms, and they would sing these every year as they would make their pilgrimage to Israel, to Jerusalem, uh, to 
on, uh, on Passover to worship at the temple on Passover. And they would, uh, you know, sing these, these songs. And Psalm 118, just a, an awesome uh, psalm. And it says, uh, you know, uh, glory to God in the highest. Actually, I think I have Psalm 118 for you on the screens. Uh, uh, let's read this together. This is a uh, uh, the psalm that they would have been singing as they went to Passover, and this is what they're shouting as Jesus rides in. Uh, let me hear you read this. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Let's go back for just a moment. Look at these words that are said here. Look at how prophetic this psalm is. Look at this. This is the gate of the Lord. What is the gate of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the gate, right? Through which the righteous shall enter. Who's that? That's us. He makes us righteous when we enter in through his gate, his death on the cross. I will praise you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Why do we worship God? Because of all that he has done for us. We are merely responding to his great love. Jesus said, you didn't love me first. I love you first. You're just responding to my love. Uh, uh, for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. And look at this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The foundation that the builders rejected has become the foundation of all things. Amazing. Amazing. Let's go on. The rest of Psalm 118. This was the Lord's doing and it is what? Marvelous in our eyes. We're just in awe. It was all the Lord's doing. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't man's idea. It wasn't a man-made religion. This was the Lord's doing. He thought of it before he created any of us. He thought of it before the foundation of the world. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, read with me. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We often quote that, don't we? We go to the beach. It's beautiful. Gorgeous weather, got our family with us. We go, oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But the context of that is what day? Oh, little different story. The context of it is the day of his crucifixion. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We call it Good Friday. Oh my gosh. Good Friday. We're going to celebrate together here at 6.30. Encourage you to come out. Uh, come early. Get a good spot. Prepare your heart. We're going to take communion together. A holy, a sacred day. Amazing service. Can't wait for it. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. Or in other words, Hosanna. I pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, I pray send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they were shouting as Jesus rode in on that Palm Sunday. All of them spirit-led, all of them being drawn by the Spirit to the Messiah 
and yet not all of them even understanding what they were doing. Amazing to see all that Jesus has prepared. As the religious leaders saw these things and heard these things and heard the common people going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and heard the people ascribing this messianic psalm to Jesus. The religious leaders, Luke's gospel tells us, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke all these people. Do you hear what they are ascribing to you? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If these would remain silent, what? Even the rocks would cry out. Why? Because this is the day that the Lord had made before the beginning of time. And all of human history points towards this day. Either to it or from it. All of human, this is the day that the Lord has made. And if you don't worship me, all Gav creation worship me. But I will be worshipped. For I am worthy of all praise. How amazing. How amazing. Why did Jesus say that even the rocks would cry out? Because this day was planned before the beginning of time. It was the exact day that Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. One of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. It is stunning. We don't have time to go into it in depth. But you might want to read it on your own. It requires some study. Uh, but it is a profound prophecy. Let me just give it to you quickly. Daniel, young Daniel, a teenager Daniel, was uh, in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came and besieged Jerusalem. They burnt it to the ground and they took Daniel captive. And where did they take him to? To Babylon. And there in Babylon, Daniel had been reading the prophecies and he knew that the time of their captivity, the 70 years of captivity, was about to be up. And he was praying. He, he prayed uh, three times a day as he always did. He was a devout man of God. God had used him powerfully. God brought him into Dan Daniel, into Babylon. He became, uh, you know, a very high leader in government and in, in all affairs. And uh, Daniel was praying and God told Daniel, God gave him a decree, uh, excuse me, a prophecy that... Um, uh, about the Messiah's coming, about this very day that we're talking to. And here's what he said. He said that uh, from the time that the decree is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem had been burnt down by Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed. And Daniel was praying for Jerusalem every day, three, days, three times a day. And God told Daniel, Daniel, from the time that a decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem, count off 483 years, and then the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem and present himself. That's an amazing prophecy, right? Count off 483 years, and then the Messiah will ride in and reveal himself. Uh, so Daniel writes his prophecy down. 
And history tells us that on March 14th, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, issues a decree to do what? To rebuild Jerusalem. Wow. You can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah stands before the king. That's another story, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> he issues this decree. If you count off 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC, guess what date you get? Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. The very day that Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday. The very day we're celebrating right now. Amazing. If you're saying, hey, that's not quite right, if you're quick at math, uh, there's, there are 360-day years, not 365-day years. There's a book called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. He does a phenomenal job breaking all this down. He was knighted over that book, by the way. And uh, he breaks all this down in exquisite detail if you want to read it. Uh, but on that very day, Jesus rode in on a donkey and the people praised him just as was prophesied in all of the Messianic prophecies and in Daniel 9. And uh, something very interesting happens. Do you know what happens? Instead of rejoicing, instead of celebrating, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus says as he's riding on this donkey, what is he doing? He's weeping. And the word that, he, that is used in the Greek for weeping is a bitter crying. You know, just like your whole body crying. You know, sometimes you have tears and you don't want anybody to see you and just kind of go like that. Then there's the other time when you're like, <gasps> it's the latter. Uh, Jesus was bitterly weeping as he rides in on Palm Sunday. And the question is, why? Why? Why is Jesus weeping on this day? Why? You might be prone to think, well, it's because he knew it was coming. He was going to be crucified. Yes, he did, but that wasn't why he was weeping. Scripture tells us why he was weeping. He was weeping because he knew that most of the people who were praising Jesus We're going to be the same ones saying crucify him. Not what I was going to say, but good answer. <laughs> Those who were praying Jesus were, pray, were excuse me, praising Jesus were praising a different Jesus. A Jesus that they wanted to set up a political kingdom. A Jesus that they wanted to have them set up with wealth and prosperity. A Jesus that they wanted to take away all of their problems and fix their afflictions. A Jesus that they wanted for selfish, carnal, materialistic reasons. Instead of a Jesus who would come to save us of our sin and make us holy. They had no interest in that kind of Messiah. They wanted a prosperity Messiah. And for that reason, Jesus weeps bitterly. They were not seeking the real Messiah. They were not seeking a, the Jesus who saved their souls. They wanted to be saved from Rome and from tax and from the tyranny of Rome. Uh, and it begs the question, does it not? 
Which Jesus do you praise? Which Jesus do you want? And why do you come to him? What is it that you are looking for? Well, I got some marital problems, and Lord, I just really need you to fix my marriage. Or, hey, I got this problem, you know, I, I can't afford my help, my mortgage and my bills. Lord, I need help on my phone. Which Jesus are you seeking? Well, I got some health issues, and I, which Jesus are you seeking? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. What is that that Jesus means? Seek first a relationship with me. The king of kings. Let, come into my kingdom. Start living in my universe. The things that I value. The things that are important to me. Submit yourself to my lordship. Let me lead and direct your life. And all of these things, the bills and everything else will be added unto you. I'll heal your marriage. I'll heal your, your physical needs, but seek me first. Which Jesus are you worshiping? I have a quote from MacArthur, John MacArthur. Uh, it's a long quote. I'd like you to read it with me. Um, follow along, read with me if you will. Many people today are open to a Jesus who they think will give them wealth, health, success, happiness, and the other worldly things they want. Like the multitude at the triumphal entry, they will loudly acclaim Jesus as long as they believe he will satisfy their selfish desires. Let's go on. But like the same multitude, a few days later, they will reject and denounce Jesus when he does not deliver as expected. When his word confronts them with the, I'm going to use the word, with the reality of their sin and their need of a savior, they curse him and turn away. As far as the true intent of the people was concerned, Jesus' coronation was a hollow, empty pretense. The words of the multitude were right words, but their hearts were not. Wow. And it's a sobering thought, is it not? And does it not lead us to the question, what Jesus do you worship? I want you to know that Jesus is not hard to please. He delights in the praises of his people. Psalm 149 says, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Isn't that a great verse? The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek, the humble, with salvation. The Lord's not hard to please. But I have to ask, uh, does Jesus rejoice or weep when I praise him? What am I coming to him for? Here the people are seeking him for the wrong reasons and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. He is not hard to please. He delights in all those who come to him in spirit and truth. But he does not receive the praise from those who come to him just to merely satisfy their selfish desires. Uh,
Here we see the heart of King Jesus, don't we? We see the things that are important to him. And may we line ourselves up accordingly because it's just our sin nature to start coming to him for wrong things, to make it all about our agenda instead of about his agenda. And we get off track. Notice what Jesus does next in our passage here. Uh, Verse 12. Are you tracking with me? Verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Let me kind of explain what was happening here. Jesus goes into the temple and this, by the way, was a big, huge area. If you've been to Israel, you know how big the Temple Mount is. There are tens of thousands of worshipers there all the time, right? I mean, this is a massive area. And Jesus comes in and it shows his, his power. And he just starts flipping over the tables. And, you know, it shows, and here's what's happening. There's these, there's these money changers. And you would come to, to Passover at this time. Uh, Passover was the, the one time a year where all Jews had to go to Jerusalem at the temple. And they would go there. And if you were, you'd have to bring an offering. But some, some of you were coming from a long, long way. And, you know, you couldn't bring your, your animal offering that far. So you could buy an animal once you got to the temple. But when you got there, you couldn't use your currency. You had to use the temple currency. And so they had money changers. And what do you think the money changers would do when they turned your currency into temple currency? Take 20% right off the top. I don't know what the percentage was, but they take some money right off the top. Uh, and then there was uh, the, the animals that you could buy. And, and guess what they were doing with the animals you could buy to give an offering? They were charging an exorbitant price for them, Right? And then if you brought your animal, there was the inspection table and they would say, okay, we have to expect the, inspect the animal. And they would inspect the animal and they would find fault with the animal that you were bringing. It had to be a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. And there's a reason for that. Why is there a reason for that? Well, because we're to give God our very best. We're not to give God, you know, the lamb with a broken leg or the lamb with mange. We're to give God the very best. And so they would inspect it. But what happened is, uh, Jesus, by the way, was, was that pure and spotless lamb. It's all a foreshadow of him. What would happen, though, is that uh, to make more money, the priest would say, oh, I'm sorry, this lamb has a blemish. We can't use it. But right over here for $99.95, <laughs> and Jesus comes in and it repulses him. Man has somehow turned the worship of God into a vain religion, a way to make money. And we see not much has changed. Not much has changed today. So look what he does. He sees those who bought and sold in the temple and he overturned the tables. These would be stone tables, really big, really heavy. Jesus was a a strong man. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the doves and the lambs and the animals. And he said to them, it is written, 
my house, here Jesus calls the temple. What does he call it? My house. Oh my gosh. A clear statement of divinity. My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. If you were coming from Jericho into Jerusalem, you would have to pass by the den of thieves. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan was beaten so badly, right? Uh, as he was coming, making his way into Jerusalem. Jesus says, you think it's dangerous there. It's way worse in the temple. You have made the house of God a den of thieves. Look what happens, verse 14. After he drives them all out. By the way, how do you explain this? The religious leaders, they want to crucify Jesus. They want to kill him. They're working towards it. And here he comes in plainly, obviously, and, you know, turns over tables. He's not hiding, right? Uh, it just shows his sovereignty on the whole thing. Uh, they didn't take his life. He gave his life. Verse 14 uh, after Jesus drives out the, the money changers and the false religion, look what happens. I love this verse. Then the blind and the lame and the drug addicts and the broken marriages and the sex addicts and the men addicted to pornography and the hotheads and the prideful and the arrogant and the lame and all the broken people of the world come to Jesus in the temple and he heals them. This is the heart of our king. This is why he drives out the money changers. Because the broken are not welcome. Only the wealthy are welcome. Only the rich and powerful are welcome. Only, and he says, no, 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 that's not what my house is all about. And he allows the broken and the lame and the hurting and, the, and the, the, the disease to come in and he heals them. But when the chief priest saw the wonderful thing, my, sorry, I got, can't read, uh, saw the wonderful things that he did, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the sick being healed, the marriages being saved, when they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out, in the temple, saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. They were delighted. They were overjoyed with gratitude. No, what does it say? They were indignant. Isn't that crazy? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're calling you the Messiah, in other words. And Jesus said to them, yes, you're right, they are. And have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. He quotes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, I love Psalm 8. Do you know Psalm 8? Psalm 8 is all about God visiting his people. Psalm 8 is, when I consider the moon and the stars, the works of your hands which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? 
Who in the heck are we that you would put us? You've made us for a little while lower than the angels, but you've crowned us with glory and honor. Uh, and the psalm finishes with this quote here, and it shows uh, just there's so much depth in that. Oh my gosh, I wish we had time to unpack that even more. I hope you can track with it. Uh, have you not read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Do you know what true worship is, by the way? True worship is not, true worship is not a really good band with a fog machine and lights so that you come in and just go, oh, wow, and have an emotional experience. True worship is when your heart is so moved by the God who loves you that you go, oh, I just want to praise you. What else can I do? I'm in awe of who you are. And that's what was happened after these blind were healed, after these lame would walk, after these broken marriages were healed. All you can do is say, Lord, you're amazing. Uh, I just want to praise you. Then he left them and went out, left the, the, the religious leaders, and went out of the city to Bethany. And he lodged there. Bethany is uh, Mary and Martha's house, by the way. Lazarus, they were all brothers and sisters. And he goes and he stays with them. He rides out of the city and he stays with them. Um, the prosperity gospel is very prevalent in our day. And I want you to know it is a counterfeit gospel. The false teachers of these you know, prosperity churches will tell you that Jesus wants you to be wealthy and healthy and have a big house. And if you're sick or you're hurting or you're in debt, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's really your fault. And uh, you don't have enough faith. So here's what you do if you don't have enough faith. Give a big what? Seed offering. And who does the seed offering go to? To them. And that'll show God that you have enough faith and you know what this is? This is a false gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It's not good news at all. It's a message of works. It's a message of earning your salvation, of earning God's favor. And that is the antithesis of who Jesus is. If you go into one of these churches, turn and run out the door as quick as you can. And I feel like telling you the names of the churches in Carlsbad. <laughs> They drive me nuts. You don't ever have to be pestered to give. Do you know we have never taken one offering at this church? We've never lacked anything. God moves on your hearts. You guys are amazing. And we worship him. It's just an expression of our worship. You don't have to go with the, uh, the emotional manipulation and the smooth talkers and the, the flashy presentations that will just... It's, it's emptiness. It's emptiness. Stay away. Jesus overturned the tables of charlatans like these, and they're, they're fake. They're just fake. Uh, the Apostle Paul, how wealthy was he? Yeah, he was pretty poor. He was pretty beaten. He was pretty, uh, I guess he didn't have enough faith, right? Jesus himself, uh, crazy. Something marvelous happens when Jesus drives out the money changers. Here's what happens. Those who have really needs, who know how broken they are, they come to Jesus and they're saved. 
Uh, notice what Jesus does next. Let's see if we can cover a little more ground. I'm not sure how far we'll get. Uh, we'll pick up uh, wherever we leave off. Um, but let's go a little bit further. Um, <clears throat> I think we left off in verse 18. So Jesus rides out of Jerusalem. Uh, now in the morning, this is Monday morning, he returned to the city and he was hungry. Interesting note there. He was hungry. Uh, not for food I will present to you. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? The disciples are just wondering, like, what the heck is that all about? Jesus didn't go around cursing things. Jesus never did one miracle for himself. This is very symbolic. This is very purposeful. Jesus is showing us and the disciples something important. What is the purpose of a fig tree, by the way? To bear fruit. The purpose of a fig tree is to bear fruit. The purpose of Israel, by the way, was to do what? To bear fruit. The purpose of the church, by the way, is to what? Bear fruit. And he was hungry for good fruit. And he comes to the tree and it's got nothing but leaves. There's no substantial fruit in it. It was a picture of what? Israel's vain religion. He was hungry for good fruit, but there wasn't any. Jesus, very strategically, very purposefully, did you read verse 1? Where did Jesus come? He comes down to Jerusalem as he comes in to ride in on Palm Sunday, and he goes to a specific place. Where was it? Bethphage. Bethphage. Guess what Bethphage means? Beth means house, like Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Bethphage is the house of figs. He comes into the house of figs. The fig tree is who? Israel. He comes to the house of figs to present the Messiah to the house of figs, to the nation Israel, the nation that should bearing fruit. And he finds there's no fruit on the vine. And now he curses the fig tree. Very interesting, the symbolism, by the way. Um, and it's all through, through scripture. Do you remember when Jesus began his ministry? And he calls Philip to himself. And Philip uh, calls him to be a disciple. What does Philip do? Philip goes and tells who? Nathaniel. Calls Nathaniel. And he goes to Nathaniel and he says, hey, come and see the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, really, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. And uh, Nathaniel says, man, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of National City? And, <laughs> and he goes, come and see. And so Nathaniel comes. And Nathaniel's coming, and he's walking down. Brad, stand up for a moment. And he's walking, Nathaniel's walking with 
Philip towards him. And Jesus sees him about this far off. And Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. In other words, wow, there's an Israelite who's just a, a good-hearted man who does the right things. And Nathaniel goes, how do you know me? And he says, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel goes, oh, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, because I say I saw you under the fig tree, you believe you're going to see way greater things than this, brother. <laughs> Nathaniel was the fruit of the fig tree that Jesus was looking for. But he found none in Israel. And so he curses the fig tree. And if you want to know why Jesus was weeping, this was why. One, uh, one more verse for you on your screens, Luke 19. Uh, read this with me out loud. Now as he, that's Jesus, drew near, that's, uh, I put some words in there to help you understand. I put them in parentheses, they're not in the text. Let's start over again. Now as he drew near on a donkey, he saw the city, Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, that's the day that Daniel had prophesied where the Messiah would appear on his triumphal entry, entry. If you had known, you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, what makes for your peace? Jesus dying on the cross. The things that make, make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, speaking of the temple that they would tear down and, and burn, and they did, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now you know what Jesus was weeping over. Because there was no fruit on the vine, destruction was going to come to them, and it did. In 70 AD, the Romans under Vespasian, the Roman Empire, and his son Titus, they sieged Israel, and 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. 97,000 were taken as slaves. The temple was burned to the ground. And the dysphoria happened as the Jews were scattered all over the world to save them from genocide. And they were scattered from AD 70 all the way until when? May 14th, 1948, right after the biggest Holocaust ever, at their very weakest moment, God says, now in your weakness, you'll see my strength made perfect. And he brings them back into the land and he gives them a nation, the regathering of the nation. 
And here, what we're seeing, this happened exactly as Jesus said. The fig tree was cursed. Blindness has happened in part into the nation Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. What he's telling the disciples, what he's telling us is I'm going to take my spirit from, the, from Israel and I'm going to put it upon the Gentile believers and I'm going to build my church with them. And this is his work. This is what he's doing. And uh, let's close. Let's wrap up with this. Uh, sorry to keep you late. We're one more minute. I'm... I'm going to be over to you. Verse 21. So Jesus answered. He gives them an amazing, amazing promise about the power of prayer. Look what he says. Jesus answered them and said to them, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but you will also say to this mountain, be removed and it will be cast into the sea and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Wow, what an amazing, powerful promise about prayer that Jesus gives us. Who does he give this promise to? To who? Specifically, I want a single word. Who does Jesus give this promise to? It's not to everybody. Who's it to? It's to who, Lori? To his disciples. Jesus says in order to be a disciple, you have to first deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. Make me the Lord of your life. And here's what he's saying. Anything you ask as my disciple, I will move mountains on your behalf. Yesterday, I had a conversation with a loved one, someone very important to me, and I just saw how God had moved a mountain in their life. And all I could do was go, Lord, you are amazing. I could never accomplish what you accomplished. You ever prayed for someone who wasn't saved and watched them just running amok and ruining their lives and then see God get a hold of them and bring them back? And all you can do is go, wow. Be of good courage, church. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and to bring everything that you need for godliness and, and wisdom and discernment and life and life abundant to you. The false teachers love to use this verse to claim it that they can get a new Tesla because of this verse and all I can say is their condemnation is just. The context of this verse is after Jesus just overturned the money changers and the sham religions and cursed the fig tree and said, my spirit will be on the Gentiles and now whatever you need, I will be for you. I am your God. Shall we stand? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.